and welcome again to the Strange Brew podcast. My name's Jason Barnard, and that was Art, and I think I'm going weird. That is the title track of a brilliant new five-CD collection, Original Artifacts from the British Psychedelic Scene. There's many, many box sets that try and cover this, but this is definitely in that top echelons of rubble and flying saucers and nuggets and that kind of thing. This really is... um, one of the definitive overviews of the British psychedelic scene with 50 minutes of previously unreleased material from that period, 1966 to 68. And I've got the compiler and all-round expert on all things British psychedelic scene, David Wells here. Welcome, David. Hi, Jason. Thanks for inviting me. Looking forward to uh, to going through it. Um, as I said before we, we came on, uh, there's just so much good stuff, nearly seven hours of material. It's difficult to condense it into like 15 songs, but uh, at least people will get a flavour of it anyway. Yeah, and you really do get the feel from reading the extensive sleeve notes and the attention to detail in terms of the range of material prominent bands bands that you are familiar with but then much rarer material that that this really does seem a a labor of love um yes certainly is for me um yeah we we were lucky that we managed to get access from all the major labels really but i didn't just want it to be like a a, a psychedelia's greatest hits type thing i i wanted to include those bands who were active in 67 maybe didn't get beyond demo stage and uh, yeah I managed to contact quite a few bands who had nothing released at the time uh, and their estates haven't surfaced haven't uh, done the rounds as it were over the last couple of decades so we were able to include as, as you mentioned in your intro about 50 minutes of previously unreleased music which at this stage of the game sort of 55, minute, uh, 55 years later mm. is, is a fair old achievement I think it certainly is. So let, let's talk about that first track. So that's Art. They developed ultimately into Spooky Tooth? Yeah, in fact, the album came out in December 67, and by that time, by the time the album appeared, they had Gary Wright added to their line-up um, at the request of, of Island Records, and they'd become Spooky Tooth. So it's a bit of an odd thing where you're releasing a new album by a band who are no longer called that name. Uh it's a it's a strange one. The, the, the really odd thing for me is that Gary Wright was brought in because Ireland thought that the band lacked songwriting ability. But the, but the art album Supernatural Fairy Tales, there's some great songs on there. Mm. So yeah, I think I'm going weird is um, just kind of a scene setting opening track really to the box. Um, certainly, I, I love Spooky Tooth as well, early Spooky Tooth. But um, I, they were fine as art as far as I'm concerned. And their story seems to map many of the acts here where there was earlier versions of the band that was more R&B soul and then there was a sort of turning point and then they... Yeah, it's, I mean, it's quite interesting with art because initially they were the VIPs who were kind of an R&B soul band from Carlisle and when they were uh, playing locally, their, their biggest fans were, were the embryonic Black Sabbath who were based in Carlisle for a while. Uh, the band Earth, that is. And they used to play art cover versions, um, the band that became Black Sabbath. So there's kind of a lineage there where, where one thing becomes something else. You wouldn't associate Black Sabbath with psychedelia, for instance. It, it's kind of that doomy proto-metal thing. But they were inspired by art. So I think I'm going weird. It does have that kind of doomy, um, gloomy edge to it as well, I guess. And am I right that Keith Emerson was in the group prior to the, this recording? He was in the VIPs and he left to join P.P. Arnold's backing band and, of course, they became the Nice. 
so yeah, that, I mean, when when Emerson was was with the band, they jammed at Scotch St James with with Jimi Hendrix soon after he came into this country. So yeah, there's a, there's a fascinating prehistory there. And then talking about fascinating prehistories we next have sleepy rosy cat fly which was a, a single on cbs from 68 the roots of this were in uh, the band the warriors which originally john anderson was in of yes that's right yeah john anderson was in the warriors obviously they were kind of a beat group really beat boom band um but by 67 summer 67 they were playing in germany when they collapsed uh, and a couple of them joined forces with uh, some members of, of the Manchester band, The Big Sound, came back uh, into this country, and then they added another ex-warrior. So it's basically all of the warriors, bar John Anderson at that stage. And uh, they added Mick Fowler, who wrote Rosie Can't Fly, which is uh, one of those things that, for some reason over the years, hasn't really got as much acclaim as it should it's a great song uh and and one of the guys in there in the band uh david foster had played in the warriors with john anderson and he subsequently um wrote with him and he wrote sweet dreams and time in the word on the second yes album so again there's all kinds of offshoots um pre-band activities post-band activities but but this is a, a track that stands up on its own irrespective of, of the actual members of the band and what they went on to do next it certainly does because it's worth touching not only on the sound of the record but the the lyrical theme has got a bit going back to that sort of childhood which is a recurrent theme in in this scene Yes, it's it's got that kind of lost innocence, um, half-remembered dreams of childhood, all that kind of thing, uh, which is why, in a way, it's surprising that it hasn't got much acclaim over the last 20 years when so much is written about how British psychedelia was fascinated with that kind of Lewis Carroll delving back into childhood. But uh, Rosie Can't Fly is, is, is a pretty obscure example. Um, and it may well be simply that it came out on CBS, who who were, um, at that stage, the British arm of CBS was a fairly small uh, small organisation. Obviously, people associate that with Simon and Garfunkel, but that was the American Columbia head office, as it were. CBS in this country was a fairly small thing run by Mike Smith in 67, 68. And so I think this hasn't appeared on official compilations before, so uh, it's nice to get it, hopefully, to a wider audience. garden playing quietly and imagining what it would be like to have wings and fly around thinking how stupid it is to walk around when you can fly like this and travel to anywhere Sometimes she sits on the garden wall Holding her teddy bear's hand Dreamy 
Wishing that she can watch petals as they grow Wishing that she could find out just where they go When the winter comes and everybody's cold The snow on the ground Think how fresh and clean it would be for Rosie flying She has grown up too soon And now she's looking at the roses of her own And wondering whether dreams will pass them by She's in a social prison now And wishing she could get away and So now we have Vamp and Floating, which was an Atlantic release, also in 68. Quite a, a notable band. I wasn't familiar with the the name of the group, but I think many people will be familiar with the band members. Yeah, they didn't last too long. I think they uh, in, indulged in various sort of uh, dubious um, <laughs> 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 um, pastimes uh, in terms of their own inability to really settle down and, and make a go of it. They, they were basically the Sam Gopal dream without Sam himself and with Viv Prince added uh, from The Pretty Things. Mick Hutchinson has confirmed that Floating was uh, about pop, but it was recorded for Screen Gems, who obviously were mainly famous for having the monkeys. <laughs> so so I, I think there was pressure put on the band to be commercial, and I, I don't think they were that really that together. So they recorded this, and then they broke up quickly after that, really. Mick Hutchinson, in particular, went on to record quite a lot after this? 
Well, it's the, the singer on, on the Vamp single is Andy Clark, and obviously they work together as Clark Hutchinson, uh, and Pete Sears is on bass, and he he then joined kind of Rod Stewart's backing band about 1971 before he uh, emigrated to America and joined De- Jefferson Starship. So, yeah, again, a, a, his, a band with a history, an interesting sort of a pre-band uh, history on on the London Underground circuit, and also they went on to do other things as well. But but again, the the single itself generally again I think this is its first ever official uh, appearance on a, on a compilation. So again, we we got this from Warner's, and it was nice to have it from the master tapes for the first time. <laughs> is Traffic, one of the giants really of the British psychedelic scene and the wonderful Utterly Simple, which is from their Mr Fantasy LP that was one of uh, Dave Mason's tracks, wasn't it? It was Dave Mason's track and it does have that kind of three minute pop psych thing that the Hole in My Shoe had as well uh, I guess these days Utterly Simple is, is probably better known by collectors for the smoke cover version mm-hmm. but uh, this is the original version like you say from Mr Fantasy Again, when when I first started kind of delving into sort of the roots of British psychedelia in the 90s, and I was trying to explain the bands, what it was I was looking for, and I was interested in that kind of 67, 68 psychedelic sound, invariably people said to me, what, you mean like traffic? They didn't say Pink Floyd 
or, or under walrus beetles. It was always traffic. Uh, and I think these days we tend to forget that they were, that kind of getting it together in the country ethos um, was synonymous, as far as the public concerned, with, with psychedelia. Holding my shoe, obviously, paper sun. And maybe maybe that's still fixed in people's minds or musicians' minds anyway, uh, whereas Pink Floyd went on to do other things, obviously Dark Side of the Moon, etc., um, traffic is still kind of associated, uh, as far as bands are concerned, with that arrival of psychedelia in '67. And for me, especially given his contribution to the the group in this period, that Dave Mason didn't seem to be treated that well, and I don't think he lasted that much longer in the group in this period. No, although he'd also been dismissed from the previous band as well. <laughs> So, so I, I, I think he was pretty much a one-man band. He wanted to write and sing his own songs, and he was probably less of a group player than some of the others. So, um, yeah, he'd been in um, the Helians, I think, who were in part on oh, the yeah. Pi label. And again, he, he got his marching orders from that as well. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, yeah, uh, obviously a very good songwriter, a good singer, interesting in terms of um, his production qualities. He, he uh, did, did the first Family album. Um, but, like I say, maybe not, not as much of a team player as the other people in the band wanted him to be. There's a an alternate version of this that was on the Here We Go Round the Mulberry Bush soundtrack, which is a, a very much a period piece as well. Yeah, we've got Spencer Davis Group on this anthology uh, with a track from um, from Mulberry Bush. What happened was that uh, the contract uh, to do the, the soundtrack for that was signed by the Spencer Davis Group while Steve Wimber was still a member. And so because of that, he said, well, I've signed the deal, therefore you've got to give my new band a shout as well. Um, because of that, Traffic also contributed to Here We Go Around the Mulvey Bush, but it was in, initially intended to be a Spencer Davis Group project.
we have one of the rarest recordings here, which is Crystal Ship, The Blue Man Runs Away. So they were originally from the Weymouth area, weren't they? That's right, they were a Weymouth band who kind of outgrew the local scene and got bookings at Middle Earth and Speakeasy. They had quite a bit of interest in them. Page One and Spark, um, uh, Spark label obviously being an offshoot of Southern Music, um, they recorded demo sessions with both those labels. Uh, the interesting thing about them really is that Pete Brown saw them at Middle Earth. Pete Brown obviously just been working with Cream as their lyricist. And he was keen to work with the Crystal Ship. And this song that we're playing, uh, Blue Man Runs Away, has lyrics by Pete Brown. So it just goes to show that even unsigned bands, bands who didn't have anything out at the time, it shows how small the scene actually was, that psychedelic scene, that they could attract somebody like Pete Brown to be interested in them purely on, on the strength of their live shows. So how rare is this track? Well, it's, it's come from our state. It's never come out before. But as I say, if you listen to it, you would think, well, well, <laughs> why didn't that come out they had all the the kind of uh, the light shows they'd named themselves after a track on the first Doors album they had Pete Brown doing their lyrics they seemed to have everything going for them but again some of these bands they had uh, they had the one kind of uh, semi band member who, who also acted as disc jockey who was also their manager and even though people complain about the big managers of the time, people like Don Arden, they tended to have more clout with the record companies and they did get their bands signed up. Mm. Uh, whereas Crystal Ship um, never got to release anything at the time. In fact, like I say, we're now talking uh, 2021 and this was recorded 53 years ago, 54 years ago, and it's the first time it's ever been heard. Amazing. And it's worth saying how quickly the music scene evolves and moves along so something that was cutting edge in 67 12 months later would be kind of old hat that's right i think the the uh best example of that really is is when the factory put out pass through the forest in october 68 and there's a kind of slightly sneery review in the new musical express that said 18 months ago we'd have called this psychedelic (laughs) as if like it it was in the dim and distant past already so, so yeah, um, it didn't last long. In fact, with this compilation, I've tried to focus on like the 18th month period when Psychedelia was coming in and then almost as it was going out again. Um, so we've condensed it, even like even though we've got nearly seven hours of music, we've condensed it to like that 18-month period, really, focusing on the big names and also the, the cult singles plus the unreleased stuff. And to me, that's partly why it's such a strong concept, that it, it focuses completely. It doesn't have any kind of post-psychedelic prog rock stuff, really. It doesn't really have any of the beat residue left. Um, it's just 18 months of solid psychedelia, really. Spark. Wasn't any room 
Next we have The Sin and Flower Man from 67 and this was one of the bands that ultimately led into Yes. That's right, Chris Squire and Peter Banks at the at the kind of the, the dying days of The Sin were also playing with Mabel Greer's Toy Shop and then those two bands kind of led into Yes by middle of 68. But again, we're, we're talking about what they became and maybe what they were before in terms of them being a, an action-style R&B band initially. But the, the focus is on, I don't know, a six-month period, I suppose, when they were playing at uh, uh, they were playing a weekly residency at the Marquee and they were performing things like Flower Man, dressed as flowers and, and brandishing kind of hoes and, and rakes. So again, I mean, a year or so later, that was seemed pretty stupid <laughs> to people. When you've got the blues boom suddenly coming in, you know, the second wave of the blues boom in 68, people have moved on from that kind of frippery to um, be a bit more dour, a bit more serious. So even Flower Man, I mean, that's backed by 14-hour Technicolor Dream. Uh, so even just choosing one track out of those two, but I went with Flower Man in the end because 14-hour Technicolor Dream, the band didn't play there. It was almost like a little cash-in as far as I'm concerned of, mm. you know, this was the Flower People's coming out ball. We weren't there, but it's like Jenny Mitchell writing Woodstock and not being there. Um, so Flower Man, to me, sounds a bit more authentic. Flower man, a sunshine shower man. 
so next we have a songwriter and there is a, a QA interview with him on The Strange Brew as well. It's John Bryan and the song I Bring the Sun. And in terms of his roots, unlike many of the bands here, John comes from more of a, a singer-songwriter, Dylan. Yeah, slightly folky singer-songwriter. In fact, we have another of his songs, Tell Me What You See, which is his first solo single, and that's going to be on our 1965 anthology, which is out in November, I think. Um, but yeah, this time, it's made in early 68, I Bring the Sun, and it was made with Mike Leander. Who obviously the previous year had, had, had worked on Sergeant. Uh, she's leaving home on Sergeant Pepper. If you play this, as you're about to, of course, you can hear it's very influenced by John Lennon. Even though John Bryant himself was aiming more for a Donovan-style folky, flowery pop thing, but uh, I think Mike Leander thought I can make something of this. There's a lot of Mellotron of it, and it's it's very much a kind of early '68 studio psychedelia thing. I remember when I spoke to him, he was definitely saying it wasn't drug-influenced. Inf- and I, I guess this, this is where the, the production comes in and just the general style. Of the... I, yeah, true, but I think he's being a bit disingenuous. If you listen to the lyrics of I Bring the Sun, <laughs> it is not um, something that is kind of uh, down-to-earth or anything like that. It's a very kind of trippy song as well. And I think, to be fair to Mike Leander, I think if that song had been presented to somebody in early 68, they'd have thought, yes, I can make this into a kind of post-Sergeant Pepper thing. Painting little numbers on the clouds up in the sky May not mean so very much to you But I believe the clouds just keep on going When they do I bring 
So next we go into one of the groups that definitely fit into this category of um, the British psychedelic scene. Blossom Toes here, another great track of theirs, What on Earth? So this was this is the single version, I, I think, isn't it? Yeah, again, uh, this is a twist if you like, on an old favourite, What on Earth, you know, it's a great song, but but whenever people, whenever it's uploaded to YouTube, it'll be the album version because that's the one that's come out on CD all the time. This is the single version and it is substantially different. Lots of um, different uh, background noises and, and little kind of um, sound bites almost uh, worked into the song. Uh, so yeah, it's nice to nice to include something that, like I say, is a new twist on an old favourite. Apparently, John um, Tony Blackburn played this on, on Radio One, which is just starting at that point. And after it, he apparently said, "Well, what on earth was that all about?" Which obviously is the, is the song is the line from the song. So I think that's quite clever, even though <laughs> Tony Blackburn is obviously <laughs> put down in favour of John Peel and all that. But uh, I can imagine Blackburn playing it on Radio One, thinking, "Well." what was all that about you know that's not going to sell and he was right as well it didn't sell but um this is still their their finest hour as far as i'm concerned i know a lot of people like the second album better if only for a moment which is heavier and i think the band themselves think that they were kind of pushed into that psychedelic bag when when it came out melody maker called it Giorgio gomelski's lonely hearts club band obviously gomelski was their producer and manager uh, and i think again there was a kind of feeling in the studio that Sergeant Pepper is, is the big, big album of the year. We can do our own version of that. And I think from the band's point of view, that might have been a bit disappointing because they just wanted it to sound like themselves, really. Yeah, I'm trying to think back to my podcast with Jim Cregan, who was in the band, and he does like some of the material, but I do get the feeling it, his affection for that isn't uniform. And it, it is interesting, speaking to many of the artists who, who did release material in that era, is that... There are many people who prefer it over the artists. So it was kind of a fleeting moment for some for some bands. I, I I think with some of the bands who didn't go on to do other things, then then it's like the finest the finest part of their their short lived career. But but when you talk about Blossom Toes, you're talking about Jim Cregan, who went on to be uh, in Family. Obviously, he was involved with Linda Lewis. He was in Cockney Rebel, and those were the hits. So. And Brian Godding, obviously the guitarist, went on to play in a more jazz rock direction with people like Julie Driscoll. And there's kind of like a little bit of snobbishness to those players. So I do think that they look back on Psychedelia with a bit of embarrassment. I know people like Zoot Money do as well. But I, I think it, a lot of it is, is, is tied in with what they went on to do. And, and Psychedelia feels like a, a moment of fun almost, um, rather than kind of like a, a really serious musical endeavour for those people. I still contend that We Are Ever So Clean is the finest thing that either of them ever did, but yeah. <laughs> but then I'm a fan rather than a musician, so. What on earth am I doing here? Waiting for the world to stop raining. I shall go out.
than the top on the washing machine. Yeah! What on earth was that all about? We have one of the highlights uh, for me of the box set and uh, one of the rarer tracks here. It's Atlanta Roots, Plastic Daffodils. So there's a bit of a connection here with Michael Chapman, I think. Yes, he was he was their manager. Uh, at that time, he was a college tutor. He was at an art school. Uh, I think he also managed um, uh, another Manchester band who were on our 1966 compilation. He was responsible for the pop art posters that they had. So, yeah, Michael Chapman managed them when they were called the Ivy League. But when John Carter's band, the Ivy League, started to be successful, they had to change their name again and they became Atlanta Roots. Uh, so they played on the Manchester group circuit, really, reached the semi-final of the Melody Maker Beat competition. And they recorded this at um, Birmingham studio called Hollick and Taylor. And I'm still staggered that it's just a demo studio recording. Um, it, it sounds much too good for that, really. Um, and obviously, because they were art school, they, they have some nice artwork from that time. It actually looks, from their illustrations at the time, it almost looks like a Duke's Stratosphere type thing. So initially, when I stumbled across it, I was a bit suspicious, but it, it, it hmm. does genuinely date from 67. And yeah, it's a great track, isn't it? It's a bit of a cliche. It's just staggering how an A&R man didn't pick it up. Yeah, I, I I think we look at it from that perspective, but I, I don't know what the band were aiming for because they were all students at the time. They were just about to go off to, to college, uh, one or two of them anyway. Uh, so maybe it's something that was just a fun thing to do in their spare time. Maybe they weren't thinking about actually making it. We always we always look at bands from a collector's point of view as bands who were trying to, to make the big time, you know, and some of them didn't have agents. They they um, they got their own gigs and it was like a, a spare time activity where they could continue their studies and, and mess about with music. So I, I don't know what their perspective was on it, but uh, it does, yeah, I agree, it does seem staggering that this track didn't come out at the time. Yeah, very rare. Like I say, I think it only exists as one, one acetate copy. Um, but uh, yeah, to me, it's one of the highlights of the set as well. Looking glass 
faces blue and red landscape looks like it is dead china dogs beside the chair remind me i've been everywhere Turquoise cushion, satin and lace London's Ritz and Gilbert's Place Questions answered, all you ask But the only things that really last are Photos of her man I've seen everyone I can Green carnations in the coats In twos across the room they float Super story, super cast But the only things that really for me another giant of the British psychedelic scene but not necessarily in a commercial sense but certainly in terms of their influence now it's Kaleidoscope and Mr Small the Watch Repairer Man this has got a real Bee Gees character study influence I, I, I think so when people when people say they like Kaleidoscope I still think what they really mean is they like the early Bee Gees but they stand up on their own in their own right mm. um, this is really strong Again, one of the things when, when it came to putting the album, uh, this compilation together, was that when there's been kind of major psychedelic era compilations before, and there've been an awful lot over the years, let's be honest, mm. they always concentrate on the singles. And I don't really understand that because obviously 67, you had the album market just coming, taking over really from singles in a way. Uh, all the classic albums that came out in 67, obviously Pipe at the Gates of Dawn, Sgt. Pepper, uh, something else by the Kinks, the Who Sell Out, all, all those kind of things. And yet, whenever I see compilations, 
they always restrict themselves to the singles. So if you're talking about including a kaleidoscope track, you've only got a, a, a potential um, pool of tracks of about three or four tracks. So I, I thought, let, let's sample the, the Tangerine Dream album, the first album, and Mr. Small, The Watch Repair Man, is something that could have been a hit single, in my opinion. What is it, two and a half minutes long, maybe? Something like that, full of hooks. Um, but they had so much good material that it just remained as an album track. So, yeah, I mean, that, that was a deliberate ploy to, to uh, when, when reviews say, oh, I think I'm going weird, to, to go for that rather than what's that sound, which was their only single. So, yeah, Mr. Small, The Watch Repair Man, um, a classic two-and-a-half-minute pop song, I think, from 1967. I remember speaking to uh, Peter Daltrey about this, and their music at the time was um, really recorded very, very well in the studio. It's got that clarity that only a certain number of groups like the Beatles have in terms of the, you know, you can hear the individual instruments. I think they were very song-based. Um, they weren't a kind of improvisational group, so, so probably what they were doing suited the better of the studio environment better than some of the other bands. Um, we've got a band called 117 on here. It's a legendary name. Um, they appeared on all the handbills of the year, and obviously there's a, a British psychedelic fanzine named after them about 30-odd years ago because they were so obscure. And uh, talking to one of their band members, he was saying that they went to Olympic Studios uh, with uh, Mick Jagger and Andrew Oldham to record, but he said they, they weren't a pop group. They were Stone students. They, they didn't think in terms of three-minute songs. Mm. And I think that's the difference. Kaleidoscope did think in terms of three-minute songs. They were kind of pop craftsmen, really.
So now we have the tickle rose-coloured glasses, and this was one of Tony Visconti's early productions, wasn't it? Uh, yeah, I think it might well be the earliest production as opposed to the earliest string arrangement. He was already doing one for the move, but in terms of production work, I think this is pretty much the first one. In fact, he renamed them the Tickle. Before that, they were called the Bunch of Fives, which was too confrontational, really, for the peace and love era. So he called them the Tickle, and he said in his uh, autobiography, a name they hated so much, it's the first and last time I ever named a group. Um, but he uh, he produced the, the Sm- Subway Smoky Pokey World and Good Evening single, fantastic single, but I've used that before on compilations. Um, so we've gone with Rose Coloured Glasses, which was an outtake from that session. Again, a lot of work's obviously gone into it. You can hear from the production, the little fades, uh, and phasing that is used. So yeah, this, this again deserves wider wider appreciation, I think. So we use this. Subway Smoky Porky World is quite well known, but was that their sole single then? Was did anything else come out by the tickle? There was nothing else. They uh, after that uh, they did this one session, and then uh, Mick Wayne put together Junior's Eyes. Ah. They backed Sam Hutt on his Boeing Duveen and the Beautiful Soup single, which is also an eye anthology, but. Uh, didn't quite make the cut for tonight. Jabberwock. Yeah, Jabberwock and Witch Dreamed It, yeah. Oh, classic, classic. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's a classic in my house. <laughs> yeah, there's a few others, but sadly not, 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 not the millions out there. Um, but uh, anyway, yeah, going back to, to the tickle, yes, this is, uh, this is uh, from their only session, like I say, Tony Visconti just coming to the country, been working with the move on their arrangements and uh, took over as producer for, for this band.
So next we have Mandrake Paddle Streamer Pandemonium Shadow <laughs> Show. So that, is that the right title? <laughs> it is, yeah. <laughs> that's a Nielsen reference, isn't it? Uh, it's actually a very Bradbury reference, but Nielsen took, oh, took it from the same back. book. Yeah, it's about. Um, right. uh, it's based on the novel Something Wicked This Way Comes, which is why that features in the lyrics. And yeah, yeah, Mad- Mandrake Paddle, St- and that is a mouthful, isn't it? Mandrake Paddle Steamer's um, <laughs> ethos was that psychedelia was all well and good, but psychedelic bands, the lyrics didn't reflect the ambitions of the music. You still had like little pop psych tunes. You had you had songs about overgrown flower children, etc. So so they kind of took literary references from from um, uh, Nordic mythology and, and Bradbury, and um, this was. This was about the Cougar and Dark circus attraction called Pandemonium Shadow Show, uh, and obviously Nielsen was a fan as well, and just as he took it for his album, so Mandrake Paddlesteamer wrote the song. Uh, they did a couple of sessions with John Peel, but um, only got as far as one single for EMI, Strange Walking Man. But again, this didn't come out at the time. There's quite a lot of unreleased material from the group, wasn't there? There seems to be almost an album's worth. There is an album's worth, yeah. It's put out... Um, I guess, and I think a year or two ago, uh, the Spanish label guess. It, it's good, good quality stuff, and it's definitely worth investigating. It's a cool and dark. They got the power to turn back time.
my thumbs Something wicked this way So now we have Nirvana and the Touchables, all of us, and we had Alex and Patrick on uh, Strange Brew a few months back, and this was actually one of Alex's key choices to cover as one of his favourite tracks. Yeah. So it's it's held in high esteem by the group. It is. It is by the band, but I've never seen anybody else mention it, and it seems really strange to me that the attention always goes to... The story of Simon Simon Bath as possibly the first UK rock pop concept album, um, although I think Days of Future Past came out around the same time. And uh, those two great singles, Rainbow Chaser, Tiny Goddess, and of course Pentecost Hotel as well. And people always concentrate on that, but I think their best album is the second one, All of Us. And The Touchables is obviously, um, um, All of Us, The Touchables, um, I think the single had it the other way round or something like that. But uh, this appeared um, on the album in September 68, and two months later it was released as a single to coincide with the film The Touchables, which is interesting anyway, because the screenplay was written by Donald Camel, who who then immediately re- rewrote it as, as a performance with Mick Jagger in, in the, um, the role as the kind of hedonistic rock star hiding away from, from gangsters. And it's exactly the same storyline. But even so, people just ignore <laughs> Just ignore all of us, uh, and like I say, to me that that's their best album, irrespective of what came before or afterwards. Uh, that that's their pinnacle, as far as I'm concerned. So again, um, been easy to go for Rainbow Chaser, which everybody knows and is great, absolutely fantastic, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But but this song to me is, is a beautiful period piece. Absolutely, and I do recommend. I don't know if it's still available that um, their vinyl album box set, which has got all of their. Uh, albums from that period plus uh, an unreleased album as well which is uh, definitely worth tracking down yes they they had their moment for a couple of years i think patrick campbell Lyons carried on with the name obviously after alex mm. departed shall we say they, they split up um but i do think the late 60s stuff is, is, is the pinnacle to be on our own The wind from somewhere east will take us back home Have our destination
one of the more notable bands here and, and, and still very active. You know, the status of the Odyssey and Oracle continues to be very high. And we've got what Rod Argent mentioned uh, to me as one of his favourite tracks from yeah. that LP, Hung Up on a Dream. Like, yes, I didn't know that he was, um, that was one of his favourite songs, but uh, to me, this is the most, in terms of the lyrics, this is the most psychedelic of, of uh, the tracks on Odyssey and Oracle. Um, you know, the references to memory of flowers resting in their hair and a dream that gave me peace and blew my mind. You know, you wouldn't have got away with that in any other year, but obviously it was made in the summer of 67. Uh, and again, this goes back to what I was saying earlier about the fact that you don't need to restrict yourself to, to singles. I mean, Timeless Season is, is obviously a great track. Uh, but it was a big hit, and everybody uh, in America, anyway, and everybody knows it. But "Hung Up on a Dream" is kind of buried away on the album, and it stands to me as, as the zombies' most psychedelic moment. That must be an Abbey Abbey Road Mellotron on that. Uh, well, yes, it is. It was recorded at Abbey Road, but the the record company wouldn't pay for an orchestra, so the group had to pay for the Mellotron, um, which is the last of their money. Uh, but then, from our perspective, the Mellotron gives it so much flavour. Uh, that maybe they wouldn't have got from an orchestra. Yeah, sometimes necessity is the mother of invention, and I think the fact that they were sort of on their uppers and and had to pay themselves or whatever, maybe it concentrated a few minds, maybe it gave it a more... um, The fact they used the Melodron Morris on everything gives it a more unilateral feel. The album sounds of a piece. That's one of the reasons why it's so popular, I think, is that it sustains a mood so well. Jeff Emmerich engineered that that album. Well, normally at Abbey Road, um, it would have been EMI, uh, EMI signed bands working with EMI technicians. So, so yeah. I mean, even when you mentioned Jeff Emmerich, it's interesting that different people used Norman Smith. Pretty thing to say he was almost like a... An extra member of the group, he was so helpful. Whereas the Pink Floyd dismissed him completely as, as, uh, as a Norman normal, I think they called him. Uh, so, so yeah, Jeff Emmerich worked. I'm, I'm sure he did work on this simply because he was the resident engineer. Um, but yeah, I mean, at the time, um, nobody paid it too much attention, did they? Even the the, the hit in America was like a, a year after they'd split up. It is interesting because it was recorded summer, autumn 67 at Abbey Road. Yeah. Then takes an age to get released, maybe spring 68. And then the hit in America, time of the season, takes what I assume is another year. That's right. What happened was that Al Cooper um, pulled it off and, of the album and, and said, this is a hit single. So they had a hit single and there was no band to promote it because Rod Argent was already um, in in the process of forming the band Argent. So there were lots of mysterious zombies um, springing up in America yeah. trying to, uh, to to say that they were the band. Uh, and I recently did uh, an album, uh, a compilation with the Sorrows, and they had exactly the same thing. They, when they were in Italy, they pinched a couple of members of a band who were going out as the Yardbirds <laughs> because the Yardbirds were no more. So, you know, nature pours a vacuum um, and other people were willing to step up. So, uh, yeah, lots of... Um, Lots of surrogate zombies over there, almost like something from uh, The Walking Dead. Um, <laughs> I, I imagine from Rod Argent's point of view, it was a bit of a nuisance that he was trying to promote his new band, trying to get off the ground, and suddenly he's got a big hit with his old band, and Colin Blundstone is is kind of working um, elsewhere. He's working as a, a clerk, I think, and also recording as Neil MacArthur. So it was kind of a bit of a nuisance at the time, but uh, 50 years later, I don't suppose he, <laughs> he objects too much. <laughs> 
For me, we finish off on a high with one of the releases that thankfully is growing in terms of its stature and has grown in its stature. It is the action, the track Brain from the wonderful Rolled Gold Sessions, our album. Again, basically a band that tracks that switching sound from that mod soul and then started to evolve into a... This was a period where there was a bridge from what many people like as that mod soul sound before Mighty Baby come in? Yeah, I think there was a lot of bands who went down the same route that year. Um, the Alan Bound set became the Alan Bound. The, the End came back from, from Spain uh, and recorded in a more psychedelic vein. Uh, Time to appear in the big sound. Suddenly, you know, they were they were a classic R&B band and uh, suddenly they're having a hit with Kites. So I, I think in terms of the action... Uh, I don't think they have much choice. The, the staggering thing about this album, the old goal for me, is again that everybody turned it down, including Apple. Yeah. I mean, how does that make any sense? George Martin being involved with the group as well. Yes, although he just pulled out, which might have affected a few band, uh, a few A uh, and R men thinking, well, why is George Martin pulled out? So, so that might have been a negative rather than a positive, the fact that he decided there was nothing more he could do for them. And and to be honest, Roll Gold was, was, apart from one track, I think, was, was recorded without him. Yeah. Um, and it might be that 
that record companies thought, well, we know what they were doing. What is this? It's, it doesn't sound like anything they've done before. And, and, you know, they don't even have a producer anymore. George Martin's pulled out. And um, I don't think, again, they had major management. I think mm. I think um, Gary Farr's brother, Ricky Farr, might have been looking after them at the time, or he had been anyway. Um, and again, as I was saying earlier, people moan about, you know, the likes of Don Arden and Peter Walsh and... Uh, some of the other big managers of the year, like Tony Secunda, you know, with the move, but they got deals for their bands. You know, it wasn't the bass player's brother who was looking after them or anything like that. So um, I, I don't know. I think Reg King also was was um, kind of slightly erratic by that stage. They had Martin Stone not come into the band, who who looked like a wizard, really. Um, so hmm. maybe maybe that put people off. Um, they did become very kind of esoteric. Um, but to me, I mean. <laughs> You listen to that stuff and you think, how could anybody listen to that and say, sorry, no thanks? For me, this is the, the sweet spot between that more accessible soul covers that they were doing and then the more improvisational and more experimental stuff of, of Mighty Baby. This is just... Yeah, I, I think once when I spoke to Zouk Money and about uh, forming Dantalian's Chariot, he just said he wanted to do something that was more interesting, more experimental, more uh, more creative. And I think that was probably how the action felt, that they'd done all the soul covers, the Motown covers, and they were great. They they did add a little bit to it, and the great, great harmonies and all that, but it was still basically somebody else's music. And I think with, um, with Roll Gold, you can almost hear them thinking, right, we can... We know enough now to do our own stuff, to write our own songs. And yeah, that it's a complete album. I mean, it's, it's, it's amazing to think of it as, as basically a demo thing. Allegedly, Brain was made up on the spot, the lyrics, by, by Reg King. But I find that very hard to, to believe. Mm. Things like uh, Take Your Brain, It's Time to Go, which to me seemed like the, the, the fitting end to this box set. You don't make that sort of thing up on the spot when you're, when you're, when you're singing along to a song. Just going back to, to the influences of that album, that, um, if you go back about four years, I did a podcast with... Roger Powell and Ian Whiteman, who were in oh, yes, the yeah. action, and focusing on Roll Gold and jazz, more experimental side, really came in. But I think still at the same time, there were still song structures there as well. They, they were listening to jazz, but I think they were also listening to the birds, who obviously were, were yeah. slightly influenced by jazz as well around that time. Yeah. Ian Whiteman had the best expression for, uh, for, for that change in emphasis, really, for the action. He, he said to me that they moved from mod to odd. <laughs> uh, and I think that sums it up in four words, really. But obviously, Ian Whiteman and Martin Stone did have a different background from the other band members. They weren't mm. soul guys or whatever. Um, and Ian Whiteman could play almost any instrument, just one of those guys, a, a sort of musical polymath who could pick up any instrument and play it. And I, I think that also affects your ability. When you when you work as a travelling jukebox and you get somebody come in like that to uh, to say there's another way of doing things, I, I think it uh, it must have an effect. And uh, how crushing must it have been to take old gold around to the various record companies and uh, being told they couldn't hear it? I did the sleeve notes for the Gerson vinyl reissue a few years back, which is still available, and there's some stories about them band not being able to eat and hungry and, and stuff after this period and it's just such a shame yeah yeah fantastic album and i love the action as well but uh, yeah. this is uh, this is one step up from there i'd say fantastic well as you said this is a fitting end to the box set and the podcast here uh, thank you so much again david it's always a pleasure and just um you know just to say 
Um, think I'm going weird. Original artifacts from the British psychedelic scene, 1966 to 68, five CD box set on grapefruit cherry red, released on uh, 29th of October. Yeah, thanks, Jason. I mean, it, it was a case really of, of looking at it and saying, right, time is going by. We got one last chance to, to contact some of these bands who didn't record at the time and to have like an overview of the entire scene, which. I think when you're just working with major labels and we're just working with private pressings or unreleased material, you don't get it. It's only when you combine all three elements that you get a complete overview of what was happening at the time, not just in the, in the major record companies, but up and down the land, really. OK, Jason. All right, then. Bye, then. Bye. Bye. <laughs> for listening to the strange brew podcast if you do like the show please consider a small donation to help keep the show archive online it's 10 years since i started the podcast and hosting fees are increasing over time all your support keeps the show running and helps me get amazing guests 
to support me, just go to thestrangebrew.co.uk where you'll see a donate button on the homepage. Thank you very much. Plus, any reviews on your podcast services help to spread the word too. Thank you.